Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your new co-host, Marissa Filial. Each month, we'll be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use disorders, resources to assist individuals with an SUD and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. We are bringing you another episode full of conversation with some of our organizational stakeholders. This month, we get to hear from Greg of the Missouri Coalition of Recovery Support Providers and Jennifer of the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse. Stay tuned for stories from the field. And without further ado, let's get talking. Well, my name is Greg Smith. I'm the executive director of the Missouri Coalition of Recovery Support Providers. And um, we were founded back in 2015. We're a statewide RCO in the state of Missouri. So we uh, represent 126 different organizations across the state. Um, We primarily do advocacy activities here in Jefferson City. Um, And we also have five affiliate chapters around the state. Uh, which get together and meet on a uh, monthly basis, at least, and discuss issues that are going on in their communities. Great. Thanks, Greg. And how'd you get started with them? It's kind of a long story, but at the, uh, the, uh, so I was a work, I, I'm a person in long-term recovery and I was working in recovery housing and, uh, for about 13 years here in Missouri. And, um, I also, in a previous life, um, was a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. Uh, for several years. And uh, for many years, recovery support services in the state of Missouri had been supported by a federal grant called the Access to Recovery Grant Program. Mm-hmm. And that money was coming to an end in 2018. So that's was really the impetus for creating our statewide RCO Uh, to advocate statewide for recovery support services and to try to continue that funding at the state level. And people kind of found out that I had a political background. So, (laughs) so I started on a voluntary basis while I was still working in recovery housing. I was coming to Jeff city, me and two other people uh, from other organizations. And we were doing a lot of, a lot of advocacy at the state capitol, and we succeeded in getting a line item uh, in our state budget for recovery support services to continue on the access to recovery program that we had been previously doing. And um, then once the line item got created, they decided they needed to have a staff person who knew the political process. And <laughs> one thing led to another. Little did I know I was creating my own job. <laughs> yeah, the um, history in, in the, the political realm, that can be a blessing and a curse. <laughs> yeah, I had always tried keeping it quiet, but uh, <laughs> it got out of the bag. So. Yeah. Uh. Sounds like you've worked it for the good, though, and that folks around you have recognized the good. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah, I tell people I get to actually lobby for something that I I believe in nowadays. So so it's exciting. That is exciting. Thinking a lot of things. I haven't had the chance yet to connect with someone who, who works with a statewide RCO. What 
In your position and just knowing generally the field of recovery, what would you say is kind of at the top of the list of what you all are working on right now as far as conversations? Well, at the top of the list is is advocacy with state legislators and with lawmakers. Um, we're also part of some federal coalitions um, where we work at the federal level as well with our our policymakers. So, so we are a state affiliate. So we're both members of ARCO, which is the Association of Recovery Community Organizations, and also we're the state chapter for the National Alliance of Recovery Residences. And so we we do all the uh, uh, recovery home credentialing in the state of Missouri, mm-hmm. and we're recognized by our state uh, Department of Mental Health for doing all of that. So, um, but it's just a great way for people to get, get together and to have coordinated outreach uh, politically. Um, we spend most of our time at the state capitol while they're in session. They only have two weeks left in our session for this year and um one thing we started last year is um so every week at the beginning of session we bring a group of people from different parts of the state and and meet with their legislators and then we also uh, kind of the culmination of that so in march we had our statewide uh, government affairs conference and uh we had uh well over a hundred recovery advocates storming the Capitol on that day, our annual uh, recovery day at the Capitol. So, so it's just a great way to bring awareness. Um, people really do understand recovery now here in Missouri. We've been working it pretty hard for five years. And uh, so th- there's good and bad things about term limits. We do have term limits in Missouri. So, mm-hmm. so um, they're limited for eight years in the House and eight years in the Senate. So so every year, about 25% of the legislature turns over So, or every election cycle. So, mm-hmm. so it's a continuous process. And, and as they, the old saying goes, if you're not at the table, um, you're on the menu. So, <laughs> so it's important. It's very important to be out there and to let, elected officials know what you do let them know Mm -hmm. your value and um, those are the main things that we have focused on very cool what are some of the benefits you you've experienced having having a statewide recovery resources so centralized well there's a few different things for one we work closely with our state department of mental health so mm-hmm. so it's kind of a two-way communication stream and it allows us rather than the department of mental health getting hit with 40 different uh, requests all the they they like to funnel everything through us and we go to them with with one re- request together um also if they have things they want us to do um they'll usually run it through us and then we disseminate it to everybody but especially through covid that's been i mean that's been demonstrated really well um early on in covid for instance we organized a statewide testing regimen where all of our recovery houses were getting their residents tested on a regular basis um, once we got um uh the opportunity to get uh, COVID tests ourselves, we distributed 
uh, tests through our networks, through all of our houses and recovery organizations across the state. Um, it's uh, also personal protective equipment, uh, PPE, and things like that. So, so we've been able to do a lot of things. In fact, the last two days I've been busy. So we've got survival kits <laughs> that the State <laughs> Department of Health. So I'm distributing a thousand survival kits to recovery organizations across the state right now. So, um, but things like that, um, it just makes it easy to work together with our state agencies. We also work a lot with the Department of Corrections, Probation and Parole, uh, the different housing agencies in the state, Department of Social Services. So. Just being here in our capital city makes it easy for us to do all of those things right here. Sounds pretty incredible and pretty streamlined. What are some of the challenges? Um, challenges? Well, <laughs> the, probably the same challenges anybody has. But I mean, we have we serve such a diverse population, um, mm-hmm. and different parts of the state have different priorities. You have your urban versus rural. Um, so uh, what are big issues to people in Kansas City or St. Louis aren't big issues to somebody out in Rolla, Missouri, which is a smaller, you know, community. So so we face a lot of those challenges, uh, just dealing with the uh, um, all sorts of different backgrounds of people and, and trying to bring everybody together into one tent. That is interesting. How do you go about serving those with serving such a vast array of needs? Like what are some practical ways you all are doing that? Uh, well, very carefully. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> that's one reason we have regional chapters. So we have regional affiliates across the state. So um, a lot of the more local issues, our regional affiliates will deal with directly on their own, especially now we have all of this America Rescue Plan money coming from the federal government. Some of it's being distributed through the state, but a lot of it's being distributed through counties and cities. And uh, so so having our, our regional, we call them recovery-oriented systems of care um, as our regional affiliates, um, being able to interact there at the local level. They bring in during their monthly meetings, they bring in their local probation and parole offices, you know, the Division of Family Services, um, uh, all the treatment providers, all the recovery support service providers, anybody who has an interest in in the area of addiction services, uh, they try to bring together to one table. And uh, that's where a lot of issues get uh, dealt with uh, more at the local level. We try to, we tend to focus at the state level primarily on things that, that are deal directly with their Department of Mental Health or our state departments um, and also with funding issues. Um, we've tried to stay focused mostly on funding. Some people would like to get us into other areas. We've kind of resisted that because at the end of the day, you need money to do what you're doing. And right. um, and when you get into some other areas, sometimes you alienate people and um we want to make sure that the funding streams continue to flow in our state and increase. And uh, that's been our focus and number one priority since day one. So that makes sense. So what does, 
What does the structure of the coalition look like? Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah. So, so, well, we have our statewide organization Mm -hmm. and um, we have, like I said, we have five different regions around the state. So um, each region, so the regions actually pick who's going to be on the board of directors for the state organization. So each region picks three people. And those three people serve on my board of directors. So we have 15 people on my board of directors. And they they kind of decide the direction of where things are going to go in the, in the state, at the state level. So like I say, we've stayed pretty focused on, on our mission. Our mission is to, to unify the uh, recovery support services organizations across the state. But we're interested in immediate access to services and building long-term relationships with our clients. So, um, so we try to stay focused on on the mission of our organization. A lot of that, like I said, is funding, and we really haven't deviated a whole lot from that. That makes sense. Thanks. What would you? What would you? What advice or? Yeah, what advice or bits of wisdom would you give someone who wanted to get involved with um, their state's policy for recovery resources? Um, just do it. So, so there's <laughs> a there's a lot of different there's a few different avenues in a lot of states. Um, um, I, I'm of the belief that that if you want to influence the political process, that you need to I I, I call it. Sh- leather lobbying so mm-hmm. you just need to go to your capital and start walking around and talking to people and uh, most people are going to be receptive and open to what you're doing so uh, we in Missouri a lot of our recovery organizations in Missouri have connections to faith organizations mm-hmm. and uh, Missouri is a relatively conservative state and uh, we're in the Bible Belt you know and um, and mm-hmm. so so a lot of legislators you you find a connection with each legislator. You you got to know who you're talking to before you go in and talk to them. But just a little background um, on their bio on their website, you can find different things where you can find a connection with somebody over something. It might be what church they attend. It might be um, it might be what college they went to. It might be maybe they have a for, maybe they actually are courageous enough in Missouri to say that they're a Cubs fan. And <laughs> Maybe if you're a Cubs fan, you can. So not not too many people, not too many politicians in Missouri would admit to being Cubs fans. If if they do, if they do, you know that they really are. So, but um, we also in Missouri have um, we have a, a state advisory council through our mm-hmm. Department of Mental Health, and I actually co-chair our state advisory council as well. Um, so just apply, I mean, we're always looking for members for our state advisory council and pretty much everybody applies, gets on unless, unless they're working for an organization that has a contract with the state. But, um, but for the most part, you know, there are opportunities out there and waiting for you. You just need to seek them out and, uh, and, and, uh, be a little assertive and, and, uh, and get included in things. So, but there's lots of different avenues that you can take. Even writing letters to the editor, 
um, mm. can be a big thing too. I, I know that's, I know that's kind of seems kind of old fashioned, but, but a lot of people like myself included, I guess I am old fashioned, but <laughs> I get, I still read, I still read our local newspaper every day and I read the letters to the editor. So, <laughs> and I know a lot of other people do too, because it comes up in conversation all over the place. <laughs> so, so, uh, writing letters to the editor can be a big thing. Um, doing podcasts like you're doing here. Um, um, there's lots of ways to influence the process. So. Greg, you're in good company. I'm a bit old fashioned myself. I come, <laughs> I live in a very small one stoplight town and I was, I understand why they had to do it, but I was heartbroken when our local newspaper had to go virtual. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I have people people tell me they say, Well, why don't you read it online? You get the news like twelve hours sooner if you read it online. And I said, Yeah, but it's not the same. Yeah. <laughs> I want to feel it in my hand. It's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. This is kind of jumping back a little bit to earlier in our conversation, but I'm I'm curious if you have if you could give us a little more insight about a little more overview about the landscape and how the political landscape and how it's shifted, I don't know, in the last five years or 10 years, just from your perspective and your experience. Um, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of things that I've seen change over the years. So for one, uh, something I was just talking with somebody else the other day about was the acceptance of medicated assisted treatment that's changed a lot in the last five to 10 years. Um, you know, it had a lot of negative connotations 10 years ago, but that's changed substantially. Um, also just the whole thing around stigma and, um, wanting to change some of the language that we use, um, you know, maybe we'll actually get the substance abuse and mental health services administration to change their name this year, maybe through the reauthorization process of SAMHSA. <laughs> um, but I, I just see a lot more awareness and things like that, especially going on, even at the local levels, um, you see a lot of like uh, opiate awareness walks and stuff like that going on. And, um, the whole thing is, is that, um, with the rising, uh, unfortunately with the rising death toll and overdose deaths, um, this is something that affects everybody. And mm -hmm. that's what I tell people too. almost every single legislator who I walk into their office, almost everyone, if they don't have a personal story, they know somebody who does. And, uh, addiction has touched every everybody's lives now and uh, it used to be something that those people did down the road or on the other side of town but it's not that way anymore it's it's affecting everybody uh, directly so so just the awareness i think has changed substantially in the last five to ten years and there's more accepting too even in employment situations you have Mm -hmm. A big push here in Missouri right now to have recovery-friendly workplaces, um, which even the state chamber of commerce is uh, is promoting. And um, ten years ago, that 
wasn't happening. <laughs> right. Yeah. Very different conversation. <laughs> yeah, it was a very different conversation back then. So, so I, yeah, I've seen a lot of changes for the better. Um, on the whole issue of stigma, some of the work, and, and I was guilty of this too myself because those of us in recovery, we get used to going to AA meetings or NA meetings or whatever, and you start, you talk a lingo to other mm-hmm. people in recovery, and you use terms that you really shouldn't be using that are really uh, uh, promote, <laughs> promoting more stigmatization. And I still see that a lot on Facebook where people are arguing against stigma, but yet they're using terms like addict and uh, clean and, and those sort of things. And I don't want to be the word police to anybody. People have had to correct me in the past. And, and I try to lead through example now because uh, we do need to to change how we, how, how we express ourselves. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's been huge language just simply language is so it, it never is, it's never absent from a conversation around fighting or pushing back against stigma, whether we're talking about substance use addiction or whatever, and just how much influence language has on how we frame and think about anything. Yeah. One thing that, well, one reason, one excuse I had used for a long time on why I wasn't buying into the new the new language was that I didn't like the term disorder. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and actually, the Recovery Research Institute uh, released a study, I don't know, it's probably been about a year ago, that actually they found that the term disorder is almost as stigmatizing as the terms it replaces. So, but I always mm. use I always say just substance use now. I, I just drop off the term disorder because I don't want people thinking I have a disorder. <laughs> <laughs> but but I guess that's just my personal thing. But but it's backed up by science too. So the Recovery Research Institute has put out some some good studies on that issue. So Well <laughs> it's I it I'm gonna have to tell on myself a little bit when you first started talking my because of who I am as a person my first thought was yeah I like things to be organized too (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) I'll I won't go uh any deeper than that but listeners take that for what you know (laughs) so Greg one of one of the things I really I like to ask anyone I'm, I'm chatting with on in this context is if for anyone who's listening, if they were only to take away one thing from this conversation, what would you want it to be? To get involved. So we can't just sit around and think that everything's going to take care of itself. Um, we need to get out there and get active. Um, I send out, to our members, I send out action alerts all the time saying, we need you to call about this bill or that bill. But you just need to get involved and get out there and start doing things. And um, don't think that somebody else is going to handle it for you. So, Awesome. Good words. I like that. Well, is there anything you'd like to plug 
before we anything to plug hmm i guess i could set up a gofundme page or something no, there you I'm go just i'm just kidding <laughs> now we have a lot of exciting things going on in missouri we're always here to help uh other people um we're hoping to help nar establish a uh um some chapters up in iowa and maybe kansas here in the future so oh, cool. so we want to expand the good things that are going on and uh, continue to grow ourselves and continue to try to fight for uh, funding and and other things that that uh, will make life better for people in recovery that's awesome greg thank you so much for having a conversation with me today not a problem thank you very much we'll talk to you later All right, listeners, I am here with Jen Place of the Colorado Consortium. Jen, welcome, and thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a Colorado native and have been working in the field of substance use disorders counseling um, for about 20 years now, or maybe a little over. I'm totally dating myself, but um, came into the field as a counselor and really fell in love with working with individuals in recovery and did clinical work, direct clinical services for about 15 years and now have stepped out of the clinical trenches to really do systems work here across our state, trying to pave the way for recovery-oriented um, systems of care to, to form, to, to get uh, clinicians and folks working in the healthcare continuum to understand and appreciate and uh, highlight recovery as the central focus of what they do. Very cool. Yeah, I've, Colorado is definitely one of those states that, as a nation focused peer recovery center of excellence, we definitely look to um, as far as kind of one of the standout states doing some really progressive and cool, innovative work. Well, I was just going to say, we've got amazing people working across the state at a lot of different levels um, trying to uh, make this happen. So thanks. We got yeah. a lot of work to do. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about the, the consortium then and a uh, little bit nuts and bolts of what all you all do. Sure. It's kind of a complex machine, but essentially we've been formally in place since about 2013 when our governor decided he was going to put some money to this plan that a bunch of stakeholders had created around prescription drug misuse. And so starting in 2014, formally with some funding from our attorney general, we have uh, since then grown. We have 10 work groups working in and around different facets of the prescription drug misuse epidemic. So we don't, we our lane is specific to prescription drugs, yet it branches out to those drugs that individuals get into as, a, uh, as it relates to prescription drugs. So we do do a lot of work in the heroin space, fentanyl space, um, amphetamine space. We steer clear of alcohol and marijuana or have thus far. We have other um, folks doing a lot of that work here in Colorado, but our work groups are aimed at, they're, they're all volunteers and they are amazing people who are stakeholders in different aspects of this. So we've got folks who are from state um, agencies. We have folks who are uh, community members, 
prescribers, therapists, lots of folks with lived experience and working in areas of public awareness, treatment, recovery, affected families and friends. We've got some folks who are more connected in the regulatory space. Uh, We have a prescription drug monitoring program work group. We have um, a safe disposal work group because we all need to safely dispose of all these prescription medications that we get and try and keep them out of the hands of our kids or other folks who might misuse them. And, uh, our provider education work group is outstanding. So we're trying to educate prescribers as well as behavioral health folks, um, all the folks working in that section of the continuum of care, trying to help them with not just treatment of substance use disorder and identification and treatment, but certainly working with pain and pain management and how to work with and utilize non-opioid medications and other therapeutic modalities to treat folks with pain because we know that that's a huge need um, for a lot of folks and also kind of a gateway for individuals to begin misusing or overusing prescription medications. Mm-hmm. We're also doing a lot of work in the benzodiazepine space. One of our newer work groups is actually a benzodiazepine action work group. Mm-hmm. And the, the peers among that group are fantastic and really bringing to light some of the non quote unquote addiction components mm-hmm. of benzodiazepines, but the complications with protracted withdrawal. Mm-hmm. We have uh, programming that's happening around uh, a new. Uh, disorder, uh, benzodiazepine-induced neurological dysfunction. So these are folks that are still disabled and unable to engage in their lives um, at the same level that they were prior to initiating benzodiazepines. And some of these folks have been um, off of benzodiazepines for years. But the the lasting effects of having been on those medications has been astounding. So um, we got a lot of stuff, a lot of hats we're wearing. Yeah. And, and peers and, and people with lived experience are a component of all of these work groups because um, this is why we, we do this work. This is why we need to be working together and how we work effectively together to, to improve the lives of Coloradans and really help folks on their paths to recovery, whatever that looks like for them. Yeah, I love that. Sorry. Oh, don't apologize. I was just going to say that. One, all of those things are incredible and thank you for doing that work. But also I love the integration of the peer voice because that, just like you were saying, that lived experience um, is expertise. And, you know, without it, you're, you're missing a vital um, lens of, you know, efficient work or successful work, in, in my opinion. Absolutely. Nothing with uh, nothing about us without us, right? Love it. Yes. Good, good. How? Tell me a little bit about the history of the consortium. I mean, it sounds like right now you all are a, a buzzing hive doing a lot of different things. How did this, and I know you mentioned the governor's work plan, but talk more about that. Sure. So the Colorado has um, their state agency is called the Office of Behavioral Health. And that office has had funding for a prescription drug abuse prevention program for, I'm going to guess, 25 years. Uh, When I came into this field, there was a prescription drug abuse prevention program. It was run by one dynamic 
nurse who her name was Jody Gingry. She was amazing, <laughs> total dynamo, but she was working mostly with prescribers across the state. This was before we had a PDMP or that prescription drug monitoring program. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Office of Behavioral Health had this small little program. Um, Jody Gingry had an advisory board. One of her advisory board members was a gentleman or yeah, was a gentleman named Rob Valick, who was a recent graduate from the CU School of Pharmacy, who was really intrigued by a prescription misuse and wanting to prevent that from happening in Colorado. So Rob Valick worked with Jody Gingry for a number of years. Um, unfortunately, Jody Gingry uh, contracted or she uh, died from Lou Gehrig's disease very quickly. And this was, I'm going to guess, about 2000 and seven. Don't quote me on that. So when the, when the universe lost Jody Gingry, the agency I was working at called Peer Assistance Services actually um, took over that grant for the Office of Behavioral Health. And I managed that program when it came under our umbrella at Peer Assistance Services. And fast forward to the governor has this plan because other state governors were concerned about prescription drug trends they were seeing in their own states. So there was a national convening of governors on this topic. And so Governor uh, John Hickenlooper at the time pulled together this advisory board who had helped Jody Gingry and overseen this work, pulled together uh, the attorney general, who was obviously very concerned about this as well, and created this, this beautiful plan. At that point, or shortly thereafter, when the University of Colorado was given money for the, okay, I'm sorry, I'm a backtrack. No, you're good. Uh, so th- when the attorney general provided the state of Colorado funding to move this strategic plan forward, it was housed within the University of Colorado where Rob Valick was still um, faculty member. And mm-hmm. so Rob Valick was able to hire a couple of staff create this um, consortium for prescription drug abuse prevention. Yes, we know the name is old. Forgive the abuse. We're working on getting that out of our name. But Mm -hmm. uh, with a few staff, then they were actually able to apply to the Office of Behavioral Health for that prescription drug abuse prevention funding. And then they were awarded that. was kind of a better fit for what the consortium was planning to do at that time. So then again, in about eight years, really, with some staff, we've been able to grow this from what was originally six work groups to 10, working on all all these different facets. We also now have four external relations staff. Really, these are four staff who are just dynamic community members who live in the four quadrants of Colorado. You know, Colorado is a nice rectangle. So you just, you know, box, could put a little cross crisscross in the middle. And then we have staff who live in those four corners of the state and they are connected with local law enforcement's communities, coalitions, um, different. And every, we have 64 counties in Colorado and all of those counties are very different uh-huh. and their geography, their accessibility and uh, regional efforts and readiness for different levels of of prevention, intervention, harm reduction, treatment, and certainly recovery support. So our external relations staff really help ready those communities for whatever it is that they're needing. They also identify gaps. Mm 
And so a big part of our effort is hearing the voices of local communities, seeing what gaps are there, what needs they have, what barriers they have to meeting those needs. And then we take those voices up and we coordinate with uh, county commissioners. We go up to the state legislature. So we have, uh, for the last several years, have really informed a lot of their uh, policy around the needs related to prescription drug and misuse and abuse, addiction, treatment, harm reduction, all of these components. And so it's been this beautiful bi-directional information highway where we're bringing Mm -hmm. up the voices of local folks, getting those heard by state leaders, getting policies passed that can help, but then also finding out what's happening at that state level, what resources there, whether they're new or old whether they're coming from state money, they're coming from SAMHSA, they're coming from the, you know, um, other national efforts. And we're able to bring those resources down back into those local communities to say, hey, did you hear about this um, new funding opportunity through the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment? Have you, do you hear about this new SAMHSA grant? The Office mm-hmm. of Behavioral Health now has funding for X, Y, or Z. Let's get you tapped into there. And then we help folks connect with one another because we know that funders, whether that be a state agency or a foundation, they like collaboration and they Mm -hmm. want to know that folks aren't working in a silo. So we're helping recovery community organizations partner with treatment organizations, partnering with public health offices, uh, partnering with school districts, partnering with youth prevention, with Volunteers of America to help um, our older aging population. So we're helping bringing folks together in ways that make sense to get them the money to do the work that they want to do which is just fantastic. Yeah. I'm sitting over here feeling giddy and excited for you. It sounds like you've, right? got all, <laughs> you've got all the right people at the table. You're having the conversations and making the connections. It, it really is a, an idyllic model. Um, one of the, one of the questions that's popping up for me is what, what's one of, from your vantage point, one of the biggest challenges in I'm thinking about Colorado and how, you know, I'm thinking about urban versus rural and you really do have a very vast spectrum of population density. And what's one of the biggest challenges you all see in meeting the needs of that, your entire community? There are several, but I would say the one that stands out the most, which could be very shocking to listeners would be the fact that we have many areas in Colorado that don't have broadband internet. Wow. <laughs> right. I mean, something yeah. that, you know, for me, I work for a university. I'm in a, a metropolitan area. You know, wh- what, yeah. who doesn't have access to the internet, but absolutely our rural and frontier areas in Colorado um, have difficulty engaging in telehealth have difficulty engaging in online recovery support, have a difficulty engaging in just some really basic recovery support um, services because they can't access the internet. They could go to a local coffee shop or they might have to go to a library, but then where's your privacy? Where's your sense of security? And that's uh, a huge challenge that we're bringing up. Again, we've been talking about this at the state legislature for a while. Like, How do we get these um, access to internet, to some of our rural and frontier areas. Yeah. Dang. I'm just, 
yeah, trying to wrap my brain around that and that, yeah, what a barrier to access that it, it seems so simple, but is wildly complicated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, being a a therapist by training, you know, we always talk about, well, you know, we love to, in our rural areas, it's difficult because, you know, someone's going to recognize my vehicle in front of your office. Um, Mm. I don't want to do that. So as therapists, we try and co-locate with other services. So that way people may not be as um, hesitant to drive to our office. But what if you can't drive to my office? And I say, okay, well, let's meet via telehealth. But yet we can't do that because you live on a ranch where there's not access. Yeah. That made me, I have a, a bit of a side story, but I have a really good friend who's a family counselor who actually lives in Colorado Springs. And she, and, um, exactly what you just said, smaller towns, smaller communities, you don't, you don't want to um, put any stigma barriers on folks. And, and so her and some of her partners opened up a practice just and renovated a big, beautiful home in a residential area. So, you know, if you're accessing their services, it just looks like you're, you're visiting a house. <laughs> Lovely. Lovely. Mm-hmm. And I love that you brought up that the stigma component, because as we experience across the nation, we have issues with stigma here in Colorado as well. So we are always thinking about ways to break through that, whether it be through our public awareness efforts, through uh, provider education, working, and then also our local folks getting people connected. Um, We worked with and and are continuing to work with the um, Colorado Agricultural Workers, um, the Farm, the Colorado Farm Bureau, trying to get um, campaigns within those entities that are destigmatizing seeking help and are showing the value of seeking help and actually have somewhat of an EAP model that's been launched in Colorado where individuals um, from the farming and ranching communities can access free services. Um, and speak with a mental health professional for, I think it's three or four sessions. Don't quote me on that, but to try to work with some of those um, non-traditional agencies that already have inroads into those communities to try and reduce the stigma and increase access to care. Man, such, such important work. And yeah, how, how innovative too, just to Again, it seems like one of those things where it's like, that's so simple, right? Just start having the conversation with folks. But for whatever reason, it's it's um, it's complicated for us. I don't know what that is. <laughs> you know, I think that so many conversations I've had over the years with practitioners, people doing the work. I mean, we're you're in the trenches. You are yeah. there. You're working with your people. You're working with your local community. Um, and it's difficult to, to have the bandwidth and the capacity and the energy and the time to step out of that trench and think, okay, wait a minute, what are these larger systems? How, how are they talking to each other? How do we get these folks to integrate and do things that make sense and not duplicate services, leverage resources, and all those components? But I think that the folks who care the most about this are the, in, in the trenches doing the work blood, sweat, and tears. And it's, it's tough. So unless you yeah. have an agency like, like ours in your state or, you know, in your region to help you do some of that stuff, it's very, very difficult because it, it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of time, a lot of energy to 
do some of that systems level assessment and yeah. then again, reporting back down to the people doing the work. Hey, you need to talk to so-and-so you need to apply for this funding. And you know what, if you don't have a grant writer, guess what? We have some funding. We're going to help you pay a grant writer to apply for oh, these nice. funds. So yeah, that's another thing that we've been able to do the last couple of years through some uh, variety of state funding. We've been able to get, I think it's a 38, uh, oh, I'll, I'll email you, Shannon, because I don't want to mess this up, but a huge yeah. return on investment in terms of the money that we have received and then pay a grant writer. Um, it's it's in the millions of dollars that, that the- wow nonprofit folks have been able to secure to do their work because of the the grant writing assistance we've been able to connect them with. Yeah, I've found in this in the grant govern government world, it it never ceases to amaze me how specific grant language is and how I want to choose my words wisely, but it it does in the <laughs> In and of itself, it becomes its own barrier in that it is so highly oh, specific. <laughs> absolutely. And again, you're busy in the trenches doing the work with folks, setting up peer mm -hmm. services, helping individuals, meeting them at the emergency department, getting them to meetings. You're doing all these things. I'm sorry, you're, you're probably not moonlighting as a grant writer. No. Right? <laughs> no. So how do you get connected with them? How do you pay them? Um, yeah. so to, if every state had that, that kind of opportunity where, Hey, we're a small nonprofit, we really need someone to write this grant for us so we can get more money and grow our services. How do we mm -hmm. do that? Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it seems like such a, a game designed for the players who are playing a different game. If that makes any sort of sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like you said, large you, you, organizations, agencies that have folks, you know, who write grants, which are not mm -hmm. very many out there. Mm -hmm. And so it, yeah. it's, yeah, if you want to fight a winning battle, you've got to get the right tools. And that's what we really want to do is help all of our Colorado communities and stakeholders get the tools they need to do the work that makes sense. Right. Yeah. What's one, I'm kind of transitioning here, but building upon all these great wins, what's one of, like, within the last 12 months, what's been one of your biggest wins? Hmm. It doesn't have to be 12 months. That was random, but. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, so I came on board with the consortium in 2018. So we had a good two years of work under my belt of face-to-face -face community work before COVID hit and kind of shut some of our uh, efforts down or dampened them to some extent. Mm -hmm. Our recovery work group has been one of the most fun pieces of, of my work. So I support the work of our recovery work group. And I have been so impressed with the work we've done over the last four years since I came on board and saw what they're wanting to do. We had a two-year pilot program at two different emergency rooms where we employed a full-time peer support specialist in those EDs. We also had funding to, funding to evaluate those. So we just wrapped up in March on the end of our two-year pilot. And so we're going to be publishing the results from that pilot program. And we're really excited to see what that shows us. Um, it, 
a lot of learning opportunities throughout that that process and how to work with the different hospital systems, the challenges of finding the right peer, um, that one peer is not enough for an emergency department, especially in a, in a metropolitan area. But we're excited to take all this information and help other emergency departments, not just in Colorado, but across the nation to figure out how do we apply this to us, whether we're a metropolitan hospital, whether we're a rural hospital, what are some of the principles of how we can stand up the services and what's the value for our mm-hmm. community and for the, the health of our patients. So that's been a big piece. Um, and then another thing that I'm incredibly proud of was the fact that Colorado was the first state that I'm aware of to actually create and put out a statewide strategic plan for recovery support services. So this is a it's five on our year website. Se- yeah. Is it? Yay! <laughs> yeah. So it was a long process. It involved um, state folks. It involved uh, healthcare folks, certainly individuals in all those areas with lived experience to inform the process. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at criminal justice, how do we uh, work with them? How do we get peer services integrated within the continuum of care? How do we increase community engagement? And there's recommendations. There's over 40 recommendations that come in this strategic plan for Colorado. Uh, But there are some larger, you know, there's some of those are very specific to Colorado, like talk to so-and-so and and get this done. Uh Um, But the, the strategies that are outlined in there that I think are incredibly um, applicable to other states and other agencies as well. So I think it's worth a look. And it's been challenging but fun to continue to work on how do we actually roll out and implement these recommendations that are in this plan. Again, COVID kind of put the the damper on that for a little while, but we're really revving back up and working with policymakers, working with foundation folks, working with our work group members to to roll this out and and make a difference. Because we want, at the end of this five years, so it ends in 2025, we want to be able to look back and say, yes, we did this, we did that, we did that. And it's just, it's really, um, it's coming along. And this is not necessarily, it's certainly not, I'm not trying to take credit for any of this, but, you know, back when I started in, in, in this position, you know, Colorado had three prominent recovery community organizations. Now we have over 12 Um Oh, another thing I'm hugely proud of is that our work group put together statutory language, which was adopted in 2020, I believe, or it might have been 2021, that defined recovery community organizations and also allocated uh, a couple of million dollars every year to grow recovery community organizations. So it's a recovery community organization (laughs) grant program. Yes. Fantastic. So we want, right? Yeah. So again how can we do that in every state where Mm -hmm. we get this on the books, we get this funded, and then we have avenues to get this new information out, not just to existing RCOs, but to be seed money to grow new ones in different parts of the state for different um, parts of the community. And so we're excited to see where this goes in the future as well. That's lots lots of cool things to be excited about. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, let me know when you let us know at the center, when you get that report published, we're happy to plug it on social media and just let again, spread the word. Awesome. We'll do. Awesome. Thank you, Jen. Um, Before we sign off, is there anything else you'd like to plug um, how people can plug into the consortium? Anything you'd like to add? Let's see. Check out our website. I would say, is the is a great place to take a look at what we are doing. 
Um, one of the things that I am also a part of that closely relates with our recovery communities is we have an affected families and friends work group. And that work group put together, uh, we have 20 different videos right now that are digital stories, completely 100%. Uh, what's the right word I'm looking for? Um, produced, <laughs> produced hundred percent by these affected family, family members. Some of them are individuals in recovery with these beautiful recovery stories. Some of them are individuals who have lost a loved one. Some of them have a loved one or a friend who is still struggling. And these are very short digestible videos that can be used, um, to help educate a community. They can be used to do a peer to peer work group to do supervision with, to, um, even just to make yourself feel a little more normal. If you're like, gosh, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. I wonder if anybody else feels this way. So it's a, a safe, digestible way to take a look at other stories. And we know that whether we're looking at recovery numbers, we're looking at people we've lost to substance use disorder, we're looking at overdose numbers, incarceration numbers. Oh my gosh, there's so many numbers, right? But it's beyond that. The work that we do and the reason we're doing this work is beyond that. It's to improve folks' lives. It's to help people. And we know that for every one individual impacted by a substance use disorder, there are tens of peoples in those ripples that go out beyond just that one number. Mm -hmm. So um, our Beyond the Numbers uh, campaign has been something that's really been neat to be a part of as well. And there's some really great stories. You can check them out on our work group uh, page. You can also check them out on YouTube. Very cool. Jen, thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you. And I appreciate you letting me kind of go all over the place, but we've got a lot going on here in Colorado. And if anyone wants to get connected or learn more, please don't hesitate to reach out. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, peerrecoverynow.org. That's peerrecoverynow.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsed by the U.S. government. Talk with you next time.